What is at the heart of the Christian faith? How could you summarise the entire content of the Bible? That's what Jesus does in the passage that was just read for us. In the 1950s, at the end of his illustrious career, Albert Einstein gave a lecture at Harvard University. And he gave it not to science students, but to the general university population. It was an hour-long lecture, very interesting. At the conclusion of the lecture, there was a question time. One of the questions from a student was, Professor Einstein, can you summarise the theory of relativity? Einstein is said to have held his hands in his face, burying, <clears throat> burying his head deep in thought, and the audience waits a moment in eager expectation for his answer. And they wait more than a minute. In fact, they wait 15 minutes, and there is the genius conjuring up an answer to this question, how do you summarise the theory of relativity? Or can you summarise the theory of relativity? Einstein takes his hands away from his face, looks at the student to answer the question, can you summarise the theory of relativity? And his answer is no. Jesus is asked a similar question of all that's written in the Old Testament, of all that the Jews understood about God. Is there any way of, of bringing it all together? Is there something that summarises it all? You see that question there in our passage. Jesus has a better answer than Einstein. It's something that he can answer and he can answer it very simply, it's love for God and it's love for others. Verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That word for hang is the word for a hinge. Here is the centre for which everything else comes from, love of God and love of others. This is what Jesus says the whole Bible is about. And if you think about it, this makes sense. It particularly makes sense of, say, the Ten Commandments, which is usually thought to be a summary, and it was in the time of Jesus. Pharisees, experts of the Bible, considered this question. It wasn't a unique question. It was a question that had been considered before. The normal answer was the Ten Commandments. But if you think about the Ten Commandments, Jesus really provides a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first five of the Ten Commandments have a direction where? Well, their direction is to God, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol, misuse my name, observe the Sabbath. These are directed to God. And the second five of the Ten Commandments, honour your father and mother, don't murder, commit adultery, steal, or give false testimony or covet, are directed to others. And so Jesus here takes those Ten Commandments and even boils them down to this summary that he, that's been provided for here as Matthew records it. There are two commandments here. There are two commands, but it, 
in actual fact, they're really the same command. They're the same command which love is at the centre and there's two directions of love, God and others. And so that's what I really want to do is I want to unpack not two separate commandments, but I want us to see how there's a really integral and important relationship between our love for God and our love for others. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, You can't love God and hate your brother. In Jesus' mind and in the New Testament, we see that there's a transforming impact that the love of God has. Often the love of God is separated from our relationship to others in the way perhaps people think about religion, spirituality, Christianity even. Oh, that's all good, that pie in the sky before you die. But what about the real world? Well, Jesus connects deeply spiritual things of another world with the very reality of our own lives and he brings them together. Some of us might know Christian people, religious people, who are exemplary exemplary in their moral behaviour, just morally impeccable. They keep Sabbath, they obey laws, it doesn't look like they do anything wrong and yet they are people who are harsh, cruel and unkind. How do we square that? What we hear Jesus saying here is, That doesn't add up. You can't have one, the love of God, and not have the love of brothers, of others, of people. This is the great commandment because I think Jesus knows that this is a great need. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we see the Great Commission where Jesus sends out those who would follow him to the nations to take the news of his death and resurrection, the forgiveness of the Gospel of grace. He sends him in the Great Commission, but here in this passage is the Great Commandment. And it's a great commandment because there is a great need. There's a great need of love in the church. In our church, sometimes uh, if churches think about what they need, often what's thought of as primary is great preachers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, if I can preach up a storm but I have not loved, it's a waste of time. See, Jesus is taking us to the most fundamental reality for the life of our church and for us as Christian people. It's fundamental. Uh, It's not quite the same as the song that says, all you need is love. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There is far more to the Christian life than just love. But here in Jesus' mind is the generating start. And It's a start that you don't move on from. And in fact, if you move on from the love of God and the love of others, you've moved on from Christianity. Last week, we saw in the previous section that Jesus came off the back of his interaction with the Sadducees. 
we, sh- we see in this passage that as Jesus raises the resurrection and the reality of the resurrection, the Sadducees are shut down. They don't have anything to say. And so the Pharisees now, perhaps they're happy that their rivals have been, sh- uh, have been shut down, but perhaps they're worried that Jesus has had another victory notched up. And so they gather themselves there in verse 36. They start to plan and plot and conspire. They bring out their best and brightest, this lawyer, both a legal and theological expert, in order to trap him, in order to snare Jesus. It's the same word that's used of the devil back in chapter 4, verse 1. They're seeking to trap Jesus. Out of Jesus, the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, which is the most important? And Jesus says, love. Love for God and love for others. And we quite like this answer. Our world quite likes the answer of love because love is a concept and an ideal that's very familiar we, as Western modern people, are drawn to love. We're drawn to the emotion of love. We're drawn to the idea of love. Puppy love, make love. We have this as part of the way we think. But here Jesus is helping us understand what that really means. Because in the Bible, love is something significant, it's important. And it's not like in our world, clouded by a fog of ambiguity. Now, in the Bible, love is very clear. Have a look at this verse from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. What, what is love in the Apostle Paul's mind? You can see this up on the screen. He says, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here is what love is primarily. Love in the New Testament is sacrifice. It's the giving of oneself for the sake of others. If you have great love, you have great sacrifice. Love in the Bible is not a means of personal fulfilment. We don't love in order to become what we'd like to be. Love is sacrifice, but love is not just sacrifice in the New Testament. Love has combined with it affection. Because you notice that Jesus could have used a range of words. Here he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He could have used obey, couldn't he? He could have used worship. He could have said, serve the Lord. But the word he uses intentionally and specifically is the word love. And love has a condition of the heart. It comes from the heart and a sacrifice flows from it. There is a care and a concern. Love in the Bible is sacrifice, but it's not merely a dutiful or mechanical sacrifice, something that you just have to do and get through. No, love is sacrifice, but it's wholehearted sacrifice. It's affectionate 
sacrifice. And so this is what Jesus is calling Christian people to. He's calling us to love God and he's calling us to love others as we love ourselves. Now this is dangerous if you think about it. It's almost a threat to ourselves, a healthy self. If you're to love others as you love yourself, there are drastic consequences, great risks involved. This is why we keep these two commandments together. The necessity of the first commandment is there in order to fulfil the second one. One is the engine to drive the car of the second. Because how can we do that? How can we love others as we love ourselves without it being a threat to ourselves? See, Jesus' direction, his direction first as he responds to the Pharisees' question is to God. And if our first direction in life is to God, it takes the threat of the second commandment away. It in fact makes the second commandment doable. The first commandment there is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And the first commandment is the basis of the second commandment. What will it look like if you love God in that way with all that you are and all that you have? What will it look like? Well, the visible expression of that kind of love is the love for one another. Which means this, that before we make our own self the priority, Jesus is helping us to see that we need to make God our priority. We need to, in fact, as people make God the focus of our self-seeking. If we are to pursue the love of others at great cost, without a love of God, we end up empty, broken, and it is dangerous and it is undoable. But here Jesus holds these two commands together. Love the Lord with all your heart. That means something. It means that the Christian person finds satisfaction so profound in a heart that our hearts are full, not from the love of others, which is normally where we seek fulfilment, but from our love of God. Love God with all your soul means something. It means to find in God such a rich and deep Reality that it fills up the aching corners of our soul. Love God with all our mind means something. It means that in God are found all the riches of knowledge and insight and wisdom. All that the human mind craves is found in God. And so if we know that first, that frees us wonderfully. It frees us in a full way. We're not drawn and dragged in empty obligation to love people. We're 
joyfully sent. We're full. And out of that fullness of our relationship with God there, we love others. And this has a wonderful effect. It's not just for the benefit of others. It's also for the benefit of ourselves. It's the fulfilment of our own longings. We as human people do love ourselves, and Jesus acknowledges this. But he flips it upside down and he says, you want to love yourself? Love God first and then love others. And there, there is the fulfilment of what it is to be a human person. Self-love is the desire for life and satisfaction rather than frustration and death. God is saying in this section, come to me and come to me and find that fullness and joy and I will satisfy your heart, your soul and your mind and from that satisfaction you are able to love others. We can't do this on ourselves, by ourselves. We need to be filled by God's love. We need those longings, those fears, those things that stop us. We need them dealt with by God, not by others. Because often we just do the opposite. We go to others for a sense of approval. We fear their judgment. And that's why it makes loving others so difficult. But here Jesus is freeing us. He's freeing us to be filled by God in order to love one another. And this is a wonderful thing. Jesus is our model for this. None of us are capable of loving in this way. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 16 says that we are to love others, not just as much as we love ourselves, we're to love others as he has loved those. And so this is a task that in many ways is beyond us. It's beyond us in the short term, And it's certainly beyond us to live a life like this in the long term. But it's God who commands, the God who commands us to love in this this way also empowers us to love in this way. And so a couple of things just to close in terms of the practical outworking of this. We are reminded here of the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, where love bears all things and believes all things and endures all things. Love, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, seeks not its own. And so we're to love in three ways. Firstly, we're to love seeking the best of others. Secondly, We're to believe the best of others. And thirdly, we're to love um, by confronting sin. So firstly, we're to seek the best for others. Love for the Christian is about the other. And so therefore that means that the nature of what our love looks like in practical terms is focused on the well-being of the other. 
Now, for us as Christian people, sometimes we assume that we know what that is. But in the Bible, love has an element of wisdom, and so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we decide what is loving, that we don't simply decide what is loving for others. Often we think, okay, uh, if I can just do this, uh, someone has died, you bring over a meal because we think that that's the loving thing to do, and often it is. But that's not always received in that way. And so love has an element of wisdom. It needs to consider the other, what is best for them. And we don't dictate to others what is best for them. We ask them. We engage with them. And so we love them in a way that they receive love. So love seeks the best for others. Secondly, love believes the best for others. This doesn't mean that love is gullible. But it takes people at face value. It's not suspicious or cynical. It's very slow to impute wrong motives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul condemns passing judgment before time. And I think in our world, we are instantly and instinctively cynical. Uh, that's how we survive in our world. And sometimes that rubs off in how we relate to others, often rubs off in how we relate to others. But we are called here to believe not the worst in others, but we are called to believe the best in others. Love believes all things. Kindness expects a generosity of heart. And sometimes that means when we have that expectation, sometimes that means we're going to get burnt. Sometimes it means we're going to get taken advantage of. We're going to feel like we've been made to look foolish or cheated. But that's our risk. If we're loving out of the fullness of God, we're willing to take that risk. As Calvin points out, it is better that harm come to us than we harm others through ill-founded suspicion. And thirdly and lastly, love confronts sin in others. Love is not an undisciplined indulgence. Where evil is displayed, love responds in confronting sin and evil. Uh, to love someone is not just to simply roll over and play dead. If a person is in sin, they need to be confronted. So three implications. Love seeks the best for others. It believes the best for others. And love confronts sin in others. I want to close with a story from the life of our church. And I think it's a story that's appropriate and very important as we think about the year forward. There's this verse that I'd just like to finish with from John chapter 13. Jesus is talking to his disciples. I've got this one up on, up on the screen, John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In October 2017, we as a church invited Sam Green, who's an expert in Islam, to come and help us think through how we might engage with Muslim people. And Sam came up, he ran, ran some seminars, and they were really helpful. But during the afternoon seminar, 
I had to um, go outside for something and as I went outside, I saw a man walking past. Now, this was a man that I'd met a couple of weeks ago at our ESL class and he was a Muslim man. And so here is this seminar about reaching Muslims and there I am out the front and I thought, oh, well, I need to come in because I'm doing stuff, but I can't just let this man walk past. So I said, g'day, we had a chat. His English was quite limited. He'd be coming along to ESL for a little while. And so I thought it's, it's kind of strange that here we are having this seminar, I'm talking to this man. This is, in one sense, the providence of God being placed in, our li in my life. So I said to him, um, would you like to come and just learn English with me one-on-one -on -one each Tuesday? And so he said, yes, he came. He came into my office. And at the time, we were fixing up the floor here. And there were a number of men, five or so, involved from our church, fixing up this area, making it look as good as it does today. And so as he came in to learn English, he started talking to these men and these men of our church invited him to help out. He just happened to have a building background and he was an engineer in his home country. And there he came each Tuesday. He soon forgot about learning English for me and preferred to do the building work. And each week we tried to look after him. It was hard. We didn't know if it was connecting with him. He sometimes often didn't have lunch with us, wouldn't accept our food or drink. We thought maybe it was because we were offending him. Anyway, towards the end of time, we gave him a Bible in his own language. He took it and we didn't hear from him for some time. He moved away, about 40 minutes away. In January this year, I get a phone call from a friend of mine who's an assistant minister, and he says, this man who was at your church has started coming along to our ESL class with his wife. And last year in 2020, his wife became a Christian, and now she wants to be baptised. That Bible that we gave that man, they read every morning together. And that time that he spent with us, just doing what we were doing, that time he spent with us, he cherished and he talked so fondly about it. And so, friends, I think this is a tremendous encouragement for us. Because this year, as we think about reaching our area, we want to do the ordinary things that we're doing. We want to take those opportunities that God gives us. We want to be patient with them. We want to pray about them. Patient. It took three years for him to kind of really start to be interested in Christianity and for his wife, at least, to become a Christian. It's going to take prayer. As we prayed last Thursday night, it was a very encouraging time. Close to 20 people, as we came together, had dinner, praying for people who are lost, praying for our passion for the lost, and praying for our planning to reach the lost. We are going to do just ordinary things. The ordinary things of our normal life, we are going to just go about them, but we're going to go about them remembering that God has sent us and we're going to go about them in a loving way. And the way that we love as a church is a very, very powerful instrument that God uses. We're going to do the ordinary. 
But we're also going to be organised. There are things that we're going to do collectively at, as a church. After our service this Sunday, we're holding a, uh, a workshop uh, for just to kind of work through how we might best hold a morning tea for our scripture parents, parents that enrol their kids to scripture. We're developing a ministry specific to Breakfast Point. But can I encourage us? Can I encourage us, as Jesus shows us here, that primarily and fundamentally, the most powerful reality for us as a church moving forward is our love for one another. And that love for one another coming from being filled with the love of God. Let's pray. Let's continue to pray that God might work powerfully through us as he has done and pray that he continues to do that in the future.